Would you like to have a short history of race in the city of Dallas? Gerald Britt grew up here. He's a black pastor and works for City Square in Dallas, and he knows personally that history, and we'll share it with you on Good God, coming right up. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm here with my friend, Gerald Britt. Gerald is the Vice President of External Affairs for City Square, which is Dallas's premier agency for um, public, uh, the public good, I would say. Uh, benevolence work, of course, in part, but also uh, interested in good government, in uh, advocacy for the poor, and for opportunity to be equalized in, in the community. I'm not sure how else you would describe it, Gerald. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a bad description. All right, yeah. very good. Well, Gerald and I have been friends for nearly 30 years uh, as we've been, uh, first we were pastors together, right. and we're both Baptists, by the way. Right. And it's really, you know, it's a really important thing probably to recognize that um, when, a, when people talk about, about the American church, mm -hmm they often talk about the American church as if it's one thing. Right, right. And, or Baptists as if we're one thing. We come in all flavors. And we come in all flavors. <laughs> and uh, it, it often reminds me, Gerald, of how often people talk about evangelical Christians and what they me really mean is white evangelical Christians. Exactly. You know, yeah. they, they don't really take account of the, the different uh, dimensions of all of that. Uh, but uh, you've been in Dallas a long time and uh, grew up here. Oh my. So third generation preacher too. Yep. Yeah. So, so what, what was your call to ministry like? Was it the kind of thing where you almost had to figure this is the family business or it, it, was, it, was it something that you, you knew God was specially drawing you apart? You know, it, it's interesting that uh, for me, it was, it, it initially kind of started out as running away from the family business. Okay. Um, you know, I, I had thought, first of all, about being a professional football player. Uh -huh. uh, then I wanted to be a lawyer. Then I wanted to be engaged in what at that time was the social justice movement. Okay. Uh, I'd gone to hear Angela Davis at SMU, Dick Gregory, at Bishop College. Uh, I think I frightened my mother and my grandfather to death because they didn't know what I was doing because I hadn't talked it over with them. Uh, but <laughs> it, was, it was wanting to be of service to my people in a substantial way. Right. Uh, but at the same time, if I could have avoided the ministry, I, I, I would have done that. And I had a couple of uh, coaches uh, who had, because after my senior year, I hadn't received any scholarship offers, although I got a lot of letters before then. And a couple of coaches got me a, uh, got me a scholarship to Tuskegee Institute. Right. And I'd filled out all the paperwork and was ready to sign it, and um, my parents were on board. And then something just spoke to me while I was getting ready, saying, if you sign this, you're committed. And I couldn't sign it. And uh, after that, I began thinking, and I just, it was an impression upon my soul, which is the only way I can explain it, that made me know that the only way I would have be settled and have peace was to go into the ministry. So I preached my first sermon on, 
April 20th of 1975. Wow. About three weeks before I graduated from high school. And then you went on to where? Bishop College. Right. And uh, was Bishop College for about a year and a half. Uh -huh. And um, then I uh, was associate minister and my grandfather's assistant pastor for about so close to seven years. Right. And uh, then joined New Mount Moriah Baptist Church because that was a that was kind of a neutral, safe place for me. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to go join my father's church, and I didn't want to stay at my grandfather's church where I tell people I, w I didn't know if I was good because the family kept telling me I was good or because I was good. Okay. And so I knew Mount Moriah, the pastor and I there, uh, became great friends over the course of maybe a couple of years. I would go over and talk right. with him, and he would then tell me stuff about the church that you would not figure any pastor would tell ah. a young preacher. And, and it didn't scare you off? No, it didn't. And then, then he, uh, I joined there. My yeah. wife and I joined there. And um, he began to show me even more. And uh, May 15th of, that, of 1982, about nine months after we had joined, he was killed in a car accident. Hmm. And the uh, and the the deacons asked me to be interim pastor that night. Uh, they ordained me because I wasn't ordained at that <laughs> time. Ordained me so I could carry out the sacraments and do baptism. And from May until uh, September of that year, I served as interim pastor. And then they called me in September to be pastor. Wow! Uh, and how many years were you there? I was there twenty-two years. Twenty-two. Twenty-two years. Okay. And. Uh, I, I tell people that it started out as a very traditional pastorate. Mm -hmm. All of the, all of the 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 trappings and all of the uh, uh, routine of a normal pastor in a relatively uh, poor setting. Although we didn't think of it as that, and um, and then after a while, uh, I got involved with Peter Johnson. Yeah. Peter uh, invited me to, or I was, I was encouraged to go to a meeting that Peter Johnson had, had called for pastors who were concerned about uh, the flood that had happened in bon at that time what we call Bonton. Bonton, right. And <coughs> we should stop and say Peter Johnson, by the way, is a sort of legendary Dallas civil rights activist right. who was part of uh, – uh, Martin Luther King's group and right. and, and marched and and was uh, did he, did he work for the Southern uh, Leadership Conference? He, he did. He wor worked with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference as an organizer, and right. field agent. Right, and he's still around. He's still here. Yeah. he's yeah. still here. Still a very good friend of mine. Good. And um, he got me involved there. I was writing uh, speeches to go before City Hall. Uh, I was writing press releases. And I, I myself was presenting at City Hall at the time and, and just kind of finding out what that. And then he got me involved in the uh, protest uh, to, to stop the city council from appealing Judge Buckmeyer's ruling on, uh, that, that the city had to have single-member districts. Right. And right. I remember the very first uh, action that we had, he, had me, uh, he pushed me in the front to help lead a march of right. 900 people from the Kennedy uh, Kennedy Memorial to City Hall, and so there, there it was me. It was Zan Holmes. It was Roy Williams. It was Martin Luther King sure. III. Yeah. 
Yeah, Marvin uh, Crenshaw maybe. Yeah, Marvin yeah. Crenshaw. Yeah, yeah. And so we led that march. And uh -huh. that's kind of how my foray into public life began. You know, it's interesting you say that because <coughs> that would have been back probably around 1990 or right. so, somewhere right. in there. Right. Uh, and and the the decision about uh, the 14-1 versus the 12-4-1 plan, right. which right. was the you know the the, the four at-large districts was right. the the other thing, uh, was. Uh, was was probably the first public issue I stepped out on as well mm -hmm. in my pastorate. And I was really surprised at how much pushback I got. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, it, it seemed only logical that if we were going to change uh, the sense of full participation uh, that had been denied to people in various districts uh, in, in this city, uh, that we would end up with, we, we needed to end up with the single member districts. Right. Uh, otherwise, everything still looked like the old oligarchy was going to continue to uh, exercise undue influence over, over other folks. And their argument was this is just going to create ward politics and all that kind of thing. Well, what is democracy anyway? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly I mean, really. Exactly. And uh, so, uh, but I, I remember that being a challenging time when I, I realized, okay, George, if you're going to step out on these things, <laughs> you just this is the way it's going to be. You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. It, and and we got pushback from the black community as well. Did uh, you really? Oh yeah. Yeah. Why there, is that? There were there were those who had benefited from the status quo. Well, that's that gets into the whole accommodation thing exactly. too, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. there were there were preachers that I admired and respected, right. and and had uh, um, had uh, uh, followed for years. Yes. Who were who were challenging us? Yes. On the wisdom of doing this, and so you know, yeah, we got pushback from all around. I think that uh, a we were too young to know any better. Yes. B, uh, we had a sense of justice that told us that this had to happen. Yes. And and so and and Peter was an excellent mentor, that, and and he allowed us to to grow into leadership while mm -hmm. giving us a sense of the flavor of what the civil rights movement had been before. Yes. And and so it was it was a challenging, harrowing time, uh, but again, you know, the results were worth it. And if it had not been for 14-1 passing, right. uh, we wouldn't have single-member districts in, on the school board. We would not have single-member right. districts in county government, right. uh, which means there would have been no John Wiley Price. It means there would not have been an Yvonne Ewell or right. a Kathleen Gillum or any of the right. ones we see today. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, it has its drawbacks. It has not produce the type of leadership or, uh, or, or politicians, frankly statesmen I call them, that mm -hmm. I had hoped would, uh, uh, it would produce. Uh, but, you know, that political maturity takes time. Yes. And I think it's going to take time for the electorate to grow, even though it's been, what, 20 some odd years. But it's going to take the electorate to grow to understand the type of leaders that we need, and it's going to take uh, a, a new level of respect for that maturity yes. uh, to, for, for it to go. So, uh. so I, I think it's, um, it, for those who, who are listening or watching uh, who are in the white community of Dallas and throughout the United States, 
this is a, very common in in cities. Right. There's there's a sense from some that the black community is thinks as 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 one. Uh, that you know it's right. it, it it has uh, a a single mind about about public issues and right. that sort of thing. But we know that's not true. Right. Uh, and I think it it's probably helpful to be able to to recognize that uh, that, that there are. Uh, there are elements who are more progressive and more conservative, both in right. the in the black community just as well as in the white community, right. and that's true in the churches too. Exactly, exactly. Uh, when you look at how the the black church per se in Dallas uh, it has mm, evolved over the time you've been here, what observations do you have? Well, I, you know, I I, I, I think that um, frankly the political influence that the black church has in the black community is overestimated and, wow. and has been for some time. Okay. Uh, there is still political influence uh, that it has and it's recognized and respected as well as it should be. Uh, but as you say, the black community itself is not monolithic. Right. And so there are more uh, there, there are more liberal voices out there, more progressive voices, one might say, uh, who don't agree with stances that are taken by the church. Uh, there are some stances, frankly, that the church should take that it hasn't taken. Right. And so we've, we've, got, we've got to work on that. Uh, I think that there was, during the time when I was growing up as a pastor, as, and as well as before, there were, there were more structures in place uh, for political thought and for uh, to give birth to politicians, the uh, structures that gave birth, if you will, to a Zan home. Ministerial alliances being exactly, one of them. Exactly. Which, which now, instead of being um, one or two, they're, they're all broken up into different exactly. kinds of coalitions. Exactly. Yeah. And, right. and, you know, when I, was, when I became a pastor, there were two National Baptist conventions, right three state conventions, mm -hmm. about 19 or 20 mm -hmm. district associations. Now they're like five state national conventions. Right. I don't know how many state conventions there are or local. Right. Uh, so, and then there's the rise of the non-denominational church. Yes. All of which have kind of sapped some strength away from right. traditional Protestant African-American uh, right. uh, 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 denominations. So, so there's a fracturing that takes place mm -hmm. uh, that calls for a new, new type of coalition building. Right. And there is this reluctance I see on the part of many uh, pastors that I would, would have thought we've overcome by now uh, to address issues uh, substantively yes. that impact our community. Well, it's not just in your community, it's in ours too. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I hate that we continue to have to say your community and our community right. when this is our community yeah. altogether. Yeah. Uh, but let's take a break and come back and address some of those things that we'd like to see the church address more okay. uh, distinctively. All right. okay. Thank you for continuing to tune in to Good God. This program is available, as many of you already know, in various formats. You can take it as a podcast that uh, is delivered to all the places you would go, whether Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play, uh, and, and you can hear it weekly and you can subscribe to it. A new episode drops every Thursday morning, and so we invite you to do that and subscribe. 
Uh, you can also find the video format in various places on the Facebook page where we invite you to like Good God. Uh, you can also find it on YouTube and on VocalNow, V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com, VocalNow. Uh, so these are various places you can go. I'd also want to tell you that you can go to the website. That's, that's www.goodgodproject.com, goodgodproject.com. And there you can find an archive of all of our previous episodes. If you like what you hear on any given week, you might actually uh, like to have a transcript of the conversation. And if you go to the website, goodgodproject.com, you can find a transcript there also uh, where you can cut and paste and uh, use uh, what's been said in that conversation. Uh, so we'd invite you to find various ways to continue to tune in and to enjoy these conversations. One special thing I want to say is thank you to the friends of this program who have contributed financially to make it possible for us to do this without inviting you to have to give. Uh, we're grateful for the support of friends of this program, and I hope that you will be too. Please tell your friends about Good God and continue to tune in. Thanks for being part of it. We're back with Gerald Britt. Gerald, we were talking about the black church and its role in Dallas, uh, but that also goes to a question of why we have to be talking about a black experience in Dallas and a white experience in Dallas. Why can't we have one city of Dallas? And there's a long history to this tension and how we have accommodated uh, this in order to have a city. The phrase, the accommodation, uh, is one that you hear uh, in the wind a lot in mm -hmm. Dallas, but it has a very specific uh, history to it. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, well, the accommodation is the title of Jim Schutz's book, Jim right. Schutz, who writes for the Dallas Observer. Uh, and, and it reflects upon a time late 50s into the 60s and 70s uh, where, where leadership, particularly in the black community, was uh, an accommodation to uh, uh, the, the desires of, of the white community uh, not to disrupt, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, civic life in Dallas. Right. And so, and so seg desegregation in Dallas happened not through protest and demonstration, but by fiat mm -hmm. uh, and, and a recognition that, a recognition that uh, Dallas would not be an attractive place to visit or to live if we had the same type of disruption that you had in Birmingham or in Selma. Right. And so, and so uh, uh, there were there was leadership in Dallas uh, that had ties to white leadership that would allow uh, the selection, if you will, mm -hmm. of leaders whom they found acceptable and and uh, un un untroubling. Mm -hmm. uh, to to uh, rise to uh, be candidates for city council and the like, and and that did not uh, it, it it didn't produce the altogether lack of tension because even on school boards and city councils, these were leaders who had to fight for credibility. 
Yeah. And and so and and fight for respect and fight to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the way it happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you remember the the when when the uh, Brown versus Board of Education mm -hmm. uh, uh, ruling came down from the city council uh, from the Supreme Court. Uh, there was this uh, uh, film that was made uh, that was supposed to have gotten Dallas ready for desegregation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and the film does not have one black or brown face in it. Wow. Uh, but it speaks to whites actually telling them to act respectable and to, and to, and to understand that the, the law had changed or whatnot, but didn't have any pictures of black or brown children didn't have any uh, voices of African Americans talking about this hmm. this change. It was it was directed towards whites. Mm -hmm. That is kind of the way the accommodation worked. Right. And so uh, it it what it produced is it, what a lot of us refer to as as in Dallas as, as a boil that hasn't been lanced in Dallas. Okay. Right. And 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 people are still afraid of lancing that boil uh, because they're afraid of the ugliness that might spill out. Well, so the Urban Institute came out with its study mm -hmm. uh, that said that Dallas uh, came in 274th out of 274 major cities in America right. in terms of its uh, inequalities mm -hmm. uh, that that. that are mainly racial and, and economic inequalities right. uh, here in Dallas. So the the net effect over time of the way we have done business in Dallas, the way our politics has been structured, the right. way our neighborhoods and our schools have been structured, the consequence of all of that has not been uh, just to create uh, a, a, a society in which everyone participates well and eagerly and flourishes, but instead a deep divide that exists. Right. I, in my 30 years in Dallas, I haven't seen a time that has been more precarious. Right. Uh, that I, I don't think that the white community in Dallas understands just how much seething, anger, resentment, and frustration exists uh, because of this long history and this lack of willingness to, to address directly the things that are about the everyday life right. of, of uh, black Dallas uh, folks. And, and, and not just uh, not just the African-American community, I think it's felt in, in the Latino community right. as well. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, a, as we try to look at what happens at city council, as we try to think about uh, issues of affordable housing and about education and about all these sorts of things, there is a racial factor to almost everything we do right. in Dallas. Right. Yeah. I mean. I mean. You know. The the idea of white supremacy that that literally seeps through mm -hmm. our entire existence, unknown and unbeknownst to many of us, in terms of how it affects our everyday living. Right. Uh, you know. From be it from Confederate monuments right. uh, to to uh, uh, the the meager attempts at equity in the city council mm -hmm. and, and the school district. Mm -hmm. All of that has to do with white supremacy and whites feeling as if they're giving something. Yes. To, to, to Right. It's, 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 it's about our charitable instincts, yeah. but we created a structure, a system of life together that 
disproportionately advantaged one people right. and disadvantaged another, and then we also are asking for credit when we give uh, right. generously certain kinds of uh, of, of uh, gifts back in, in some right. way, which is not the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that everyone is deserving of their own place. Well, you know, you, own, yeah, I, I, we we have a you know we have at City Square we have a book club every month, uh -huh. and there were there were there've been some some older uh, white uh, uh, supporters who have come from now, and when we would talk about race, their complaint would be, "You talk about you talk about this as if there's been no progress." Right. And when you stop and think about it, uh, um, you know the 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 the, the hundred years from the period after slavery ended to just say 1963, 1965 was one of the most brutal periods of segregation and Jim Crow in mm -hmm. which people were lynched with impunity, right. raped without accountability, mm -hmm. uh, economically deprived in some of the most heinous ways that you can figure. And to say that you don't give us any credit for, for <laughs> uh, you, you, you mean you want credit for being human. Right. You right. want credit for treating me as if I'm a human being. Right. And, and which does not inure to, to any type of benefit that suggests my equality or e equity in, right. with the, uh, equity of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is where we've got to move to now. Um, well, it's where we have to move to, and it <coughs> seems to me that um, we, we are in a place where now uh, we can't continue to just ignore these realities that right. you've talked about and to pretend that we can just make small incremental progress. Right. Uh, we have to take on structurally what is wrong inside of us and what is wrong uh, outside of us right. and do this as a, a, as a complementary matter. It, it's, I, I feel like the white church has said and elements of the black church as well, change a person's heart and then everything will change. Right. Uh, well, you know, that's actually not the way the biblical prophet spoke of it. It's not the way Jesus spoke of it. Right. Uh, but it is, a, it is the way the church has largely avoided getting in trouble right. with each other right. and with uh, people in public, but it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't seem to connect. You, you change your heart with, with God, right. and we don't see the net effect of that in terms of the way we do business, the right. way we choose our schools, right. the way we... Play, have our children integrate, right. it stays the same. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I, I had a friend of mine who I love dearly, and she was telling me that she, she was saying that, that um, uh, I'm trying to change the world one person at a time. Yeah, yeah. And I told her, I said, we'll all be dead by then. Yeah. You yeah. know, that, that, right. that, that there has to be some substantive change that takes place over time. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but we all have to be made somewhat uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you and I talked. All right, early. so uh, let's go ahead, <laughs> go ahead and hit me with it, Cheryl. Go ahead and hit but, me with it, because we we go way back. Yeah. And so there's a conversation that you and I have in in my office yeah. years and years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So go ahead and talk about this. Yeah, but you know, I'd come over there to talk to you about becoming a, a, a member of Dallas area and a faith, and explaining you what we do and all that. And we, I think, we drifted into a conversation about race and uh -huh. challenging congregations and whatnot. And, and, and so, you know, at, at a certain point, you said, uh, 
Well, Gerald, you know, nobody wants to be uncomfortable. And, and I thought about that, and I said, okay, that's where he is. And, right. and uh, you know, that's fine. Uh, you know, you and I have remained friends over the years. I've watched you grow in that regard. <laughs> and I've Thank watched, God. <laughs> and I've watched in a number of your sermons that you preach here at Wilshire. And I said, well, it looks like he's trying to make people uncomfortable, man. <laughs> yeah, that's what they would say, too, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I mean, but, but I think to build s- substantive relationships that last over time where neither one of you go away from the table, yeah. neither one of you stop talking, yeah. neither one of you stop talking about the things that are important to one another, right. neither one of you, where you get to the point where you're actually listening to someone and not just waiting to hear somebody else talk. Uh, that is, that's where this begins. Yeah, and and that happens over time. Right. Uh, the idea that you talked about when you when you talked about one one segment of the population uh, exercising its dominance to the disadvantage of another. That is the definition of racism. Yep. And and people don't get that. People think that racism is just simply you don't like me because I'm white or you don't like me because I'm black. Right. Racism has to do with power. Right. Racism has to do with the ability to impact through policy, through economics, the way another person lives. Yes. And 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 to the degree that we begin to take that seriously, is a degree that we we'll see just how just how badly. Uh, a whole segment of our population is doing the lack of the lack of not only economic resources but the lack of educational opportunity the lack of of of, of, of jobs the lack of uh, transportation the lack of health care right. all of that is 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 sourced out of racism right. and if we don't get that straight we'll be able to we'll be able to to, to put some band-aids on this wound but again, we'll never be able to fully lance this boil and let this poison out so that we can all be better. Well, I want to thank you for hanging in there with me over the years. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and I, you know, we laugh about that, but it's not really a laughing matter. Right. You know, uh, this, is, this is part of what our duty is to each other, right. uh, in part as um, fellow Christians, as uh, brothers in Christ, as part part as ministers, part as just human beings who are neighbors, who have to pay attention to one another. And unfortunately, we do find ourselves in a position right now, I fear, in our country where um, we, we, we aren't being patient with one another. Right. Uh, I understand the impatience, but uh, if we fall out of relationship with that impatience, right. we don't give anybody a chance to grow. Exactly. And uh, God knows we you know, we want, we want things to change quickly, uh, and, and, and maybe there are strategies for that to happen, of course, but over the long course of time, we have to know one another. Right. So thank you for your patience and for your, <laughs> uh, you know, for your deliberate uh, consistency over all these years. We have a lot more to talk about. We're going to do another episode, so okay. thanks for being with us on Good God. Well, thank we'll you. We'll come back. All right. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. 
All material copyright 2019 by Faith Commons.